verses 1 through 8. And this could be found in your Black Pew Bibles on page 1196. Again, that's Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And let us come before the Lord and stand as we read his word. And the word of the Lord says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us bow our heads and our hearts as we come before the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we want to thank you for this day that you have given each and every one of us. We thank you for another chance of life, another chance to get it right with you, Lord God, another chance to be in your presence and to glorify your name, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you will continue to teach us through your word what it means to be a follower of your son. Lord God, teach us what it means to be in right relationship with you. May we have a proper view of ourselves, Lord Father God, when it comes to this covenant, Lord God, purchased by your blood. May we understand what it means um, to be a, a follower of your son, Lord God. Lord God, we love you. We glorify your holy name. We ask, Lord God, that you may be with your church here in America and just in general, Lord God, all around the world. Be with those who are being persecuted at this moment, Lord God, for their faith. We pray that you may be with their families. Be with those who have, are, are suffering now and have been suffering for a while, Lord. We keep them in our hearts as your word tells us to, Lord, in the book of Hebrews, to never uh, forget those who are persecuted for the faith. Lord God, we come before you once again, thanking you for this opportunity to get to know you through your word. And we ask, Lord God, that we will get to know what your word actually says and what it teaches us, Lord. May we not take your word and your message and turn it into a fortune cookie saying for our life. May we not boil it down just to that, Lord God, but may we digest it. May we live it, Lord God, and may we continue to study it through and through as we get older, Lord God. And may we teach our young ones the same thing. Lord God, I ask that uh, the message today, Lord God, may be your words, that uh, it may accurately depict your teachings, Lord Father, and that we may be glorified, um, that you may be glorified, but that we may be um, uh, edified, Lord God, through your teaching. And so we just want to come before you humbly, Lord Father, thanking you for everything you have given us and everything that you are about to give, Lord Father. We praise you and we worship you. In the mighty name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. If you hadn't known already, you have a guest speaker this morning. 
Um, you ever have a moment with God where you just you stand before Him and you have no idea how He opened doors to get you where you're at? Have no idea how He had a plan for your life? And He has you exactly where you did not plan? Did you ever have that moment? Well, this is mine. It's definitely mine. I want you to know that every time I preach is an honor, but this particular time is especially special. That makes sense, right? Um, I came here when I was 12 years old, maybe 11, 10. I stand corrected. I came to school in this church, okay? A school that probably most of you didn't even know existed. And I was raised in this church. And I did not plan to have a desire to be a pastor. I did not plan to come and preach before you. In fact, I, I chose the opposite route. And boy, am I grateful that God had a different plan for my life. Amen. I am honored to be here. And when I was first asked to preach, I was filled with anxiety. Why? Because I have very large, very large, I'll try not to move, very large shoes to fill. I was raised watching this man preach from this pulpit, and I've learned countless things from him. He is my real-time Paul. He is a father figure to me. And when I told him that I wanted to be a pastor, not only did he embrace the call, but he gave me the tools necessary to succeed. So I was nervous, but I'm thankful that God uses us in different ways. And I can use my gifts to glorify God differently than Pastor Chris does. I don't have to be as amazing as he is, as hard as that is to be. But I stand before you and I pray that the Holy Spirit will use me in mighty ways to, to help us learn the Scriptures together. Okay? And I, I was a little bit nervous, too, when I was first asked to preach because Pastor Chris, of course, in his wisdom and his ability, said, Nick, this is going to be easy. I gave you this verse because I know for a fact that it is easy. I said, oh, man, that's great. I have a walk in the park. I ran home. I kid you not. You could ask my wife. As soon as we were done with our meeting, I ran home to start studying and opened up my laptop. And I kid you not, this is not an exaggerated story. I went to the resource that I always go to to study my word and to try to learn through the passage. And the very first quote that I came across is from a man that we all probably know in some shape or form that we grew up watching. He has podcasts and a huge ministry. In fact, in many ways, when I study, I go to see what this guy has to say sometimes. John Piper. And John Piper said about Romans 3, 1 through 7, Romans 3, 1 through 8, that's what I'm teaching on today. He said it this way. My brain almost broke trying to understand the complexity of that paragraph. And that was the start of my studies for this passage. <laughs> After Pastor Chris told me that it would be easy, and then my anxiety came right back. But I am excited to be here. From the very start of the year, my family and I decided to come back to this church, and boy, did I come at a good time. We started the study of Romans, and we started at Romans 1. 
And if Pastor Chris has never blown your mind, he would have blown your mind that specific sermon because he had 27 points alone on not chapter 1, on the introduction of chapter 1. Okay? And then chapter 2 came and we learned about Gentile living. And now here we are in the beginning of chapter 3 where Paul is talking specifically about Jewish advantage. You say, why would a Christian come up here and preach a sermon on Jewish advantages? We're going to get into that shortly. And I'm going to expound on the text a little bit. But before we, we expound on the text, I wanted to give you a brief introduction of this text. So that you can understand the context. You can understand where it's coming from, right? You need to do a little bit of research before you just dive into a verse. You have to understand its context. So... Romans 3, 1 through 7 is considered to be a religious diatribe. Get your pens out, because I hope to at least teach you two words, as opposed to Pastor Chris teaches you 20. I hope to give you at least two, okay? What is a religious diatribe? A religious diatribe is an oration in which the speaker seeks to persuade a specific audience. If you haven't written that down, write it down, because you never know when you're going to use it. We use that word every day, right? Um, so, what does that mean? An oration is a speech. Not like the speech we're used to reading, right? We go on Google, we can Google uh, the I Have a Dream speech from Martin Luther King. This is not like that. See, Paul writ out a, uh, he wrote out a speech, but it wasn't like a speech that we've read before because he gives a lot of room for questions and answers, so a perfect example would be as if we were in a classroom at a university or college and the professor had this long lecture written out, kind of like a speech, but he gave specific timing for questions. In this case, Paul was anticipating the Jewish question. He knew them very well. He spent a lot of time with them. He knew what they were about. So he was anticipating their question and he was seeking to persuade who? The Jews. Right? And why would Paul write this? Paul was writing to the Jew because the Jew was accusing him of being an antinomian. Another word that we use on a daily basis. Right? So, an antinomian, to understand the context, we have to understand what he was being accused of, right? They believe that faith alone is necessary for salvation and that we have no obligation to follow the moral law. Although I do believe that faith alone is necessary for salvation, but we know that Paul teaches an inward transformation when we come to Christ. In no shape or form was he an antinomian. And this particular chapter is a long speech in response to what the Jews thought they had compared to the rest of the world. They thought they had advantages that would save them and automatically grant them salvation. And although we know that there are no advantages that can ever earn Christ, that could ever earn our way to salvation, there's no way that we can earn. But did the Jew actually have advantages? What does this verse say? Romans 3, 1 and 2. Did the Jew actually have an advantage? Much. In every way. The scripture starts off right there. 
Consider the Jewish advantage. Much in every way. We can't help but read the Bible and see that the Jewish people had many advantages. They were given the patriarchs. They were given the signs of the covenant, circumcision. In fact, Jesus was Jewish. And in many ways, they were God's chosen people. So it's without being said that, of course, they had many advantages. And they were given interactions with God that we could only dream of. Verse 2 says, much in every way, because it is evident that Scripture describes a lot of advantages given to the Jews. So the next verse in Romans 3, 2 says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. There are two points that I want to make in this verse alone, and we're just getting started. First off is the word oracles. And I know Pastor Chris wrote a devotional on this, so it kind of fits perfectly in with what the church is reading and doing. But I just wanted to give you a little bit more context about what this word is doing to the verse specifically. See, translators technically would have been correct if they would have just said, the Jews were entrusted with the word of God. They would have technically been correct. But they didn't pick this word oracles to give you, confusion, give you confusion or make you confused. In fact, they did it for a very specific reason, and that is to make a distinction. You see, the Jews were given the word of God, and we are given the word of God. What's the difference? The Jews had an advantage. They got the word of God from God himself, similar to how we see in Exodus where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God himself. So although we receive the Word of God and we have it in its entirety, the Jews received it differently. So he's just describing a specific advantage that they had. Okay? And the second is to begin with. Now, R.C. Sproul makes an interesting point about this. The Greek word that's translated into to begin with is protos. That is the word being used here. Now, protos is the same word that's used in Matthew 6:33, a verse that we all know, I hope, and we sing it, it's in a lot of songs, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Protas is used in this verse. What R.C. Sproul, he connects the two, because Matthew 6:33, you would think that it would make a list of all the things that we can seek. You know, seek ye first, but you can seek other things. But in no shape or form is it saying that we cannot seek other things. But it's saying seek ye first because the word protos is not being used in a It's not uh, being used to make a list. What is used is um, in significance. It's first in significance. Seek ye first the kingdom of God in significance. It is the most significant thing we can seek. Similar to how we see in Romans 3, 2, where Paul says to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It is not first in a list, but it is first. To begin with, it is first in significance. What greater advantage can anyone ever have except to have a real-time experience with God? So first in significance, the Jews received the word straight from God. And compared to anything that we could ever imagine, that is the most significant experience. It's first-hand experience with God. But a lot of people say that if they had the same type of Jewish experience, 
if they, if they receive the same benefits and advantages that the Jewish people have, you know, the pillars of fire and all the miracles and, and the mountain where he presented the, the Ten Commandments, if they experience all those things, that they would come to faith, that they would totally believe in God, that they would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But what that point does is lead us to the second point of this sermon, and that is to consider the response to advantages. If you don't mind, please open your Bibles to Exodus 32. We're going to read nine verses together. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible underneath. It's page 91. And we're going to read it together. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. If you continue on in the story, Aaron has the most ridiculous response to this. In my opinion, the most ridiculous response I think I've ever seen. When Moses comes down infuriated, he asks, how was that cap built? And he's like, I don't know. I threw the gold in there, and it just kind of happened. Ridiculous. The Jews had the oracles of God. They had the patriarchs. They had the history. They had these moments that we all hope for, and we all, we all wish we had. But what did they do with them? In fact, the advantages that they had created an even more, a bigger opportunity for judgment. What did the advantages do? They didn't save them. Without the precious grace of God, even if we are given the greatest advantages on earth, the advantages produce greater judgment without a real transformative relationship with Christ. But we know that the Jews had these advantages. So, you know, we know that a relationship with Christ is what's needed for salvation. But we also know that the Jews had all these advantages and these advantages that we wish we had. 
So does that mean that the Jewish people had more advantages than us? Let us together consider the present advantages. Here I have a beautiful chart that my brother Ryan here helped me make. We do a podcast together. And this beautiful chart, I've seen about a year ago, maybe even longer than that, and it makes such an impact to me that I had to use it. Okay? Consider the present advantage. Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, Sophocles, Homer, are all authors that we teach in our schools as factual. Yet the New Testament is probably the most widely debated text in the history on the planet. Yet, okay, Homer is in second place. Let me explain the chart briefly. How many manuscripts do we have? And when did we find them? from when they were written. So when they were written, we waited 500 years and we found the first manuscript. And within 500 years, we found the first one. And we have 643 and Homer, the Odyssey is in second place. It doesn't even come close. We have 5,600 manuscripts of the New Testament. And yet we still debate whether or not it's true. The Jew had many advantages. But so do we. Over 5,600. <laughs> and that's just getting started. You see, we have the full canon. We have the Bible in its entirety. And we have an insane amount of manuscripts. So that means we know that what's in our Bible is true. Amen? What is the Bible? If we know that what it's in it is true, then what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible refers to itself as the Word of God 2,600 times. Let me repeat that. The Bible refers to itself 2,600 times. So we have all these manuscripts and we have all this proof that what we read is true in the Bible, and the Bible calls itself the Word of God. How can we debate that? Not only do we have these present advantages of manuscripts, but we have artifacts that prove events in the Bible that have always been debated. Events like Sodom and Gomorrah, thousands upon thousands of bodies buried underground, burnt to a crisp. How can you explain that apart from God's Word? You can't. And we have artifacts that prove the existence of people like, like Pontius Pilate, like King David, people that, that were always debated whether or not they existed or not. But we have artifacts that prove they existed. If you have questions about any of that, I would love to talk to you about it. Or you could talk to Pastor Chris about it. And we'll give you a little bit more detail. But we have artifacts proving what we read happened. These are our present advantages. Yeah, the Jews had all this special stuff, but so do we. We have so much evidence for biblical truth. So many manuscripts, so many articles. In fact, even creation is living proof that there is a God. The Bible says that. When you go outside and you look around, if you're not pointed to a creator, I really can't have a conversation with you. Because when I look up to the sky, I'm reminded 
of the powerful God we serve. We have the manuscripts. We have the truth. We have the artifacts. We have creation itself. In fact, we have the full canon. We have even more than the Jewish people had. And yet people still deny Him. But notice how we have advantages, but a great advantage may also be a great liability. With great knowledge comes responsibility. What did Israel do with the truths and advantages that they had? Throughout the entire Bible we see God redeeming His people. God giving them all these advantages. God giving them all these things. And what did they do? They constantly rebelled against Him. Saved, rebelled, saved, rebelled, saved, rebelled. All throughout Scripture, you can't deny that. In Scripture, Israel is described several times as the vine. Psalm 80, Isaiah 27, Hosea 10. There are many other places as well. In Isaiah 5-4, we see that God did many things for His people. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Now, this was written specifically to the Jews. How much more could He have done for the Jews, and yet they continue to rebel against Him? But it's, it's appropriate to say that this verse can be applied to our lives. How much more could God do for you? How many more advantages do you want? What's it going to take to give your life over to Christ? God has given you everything necessary to turn to Him, and yet humanity continues to rebel. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Do you know what He has done for you? Do you have truths and advantages or do you have a liability? Are you using the advantages to glorify God? Or are you opening the door to greater judgment? God knows that He has given you everything necessary. In fact, Paul responds to this. In verses 3 and 4, he says that we should consider our responsibility. Verse 3 and 4 unlocks our fifth point of the text, that we need to consider our responsibility. You, and only you, are responsible for your unfaithfulness. You, and only you, having advantages does not nullify your responsibility to respond to God's call on your life to be image bearers of Him. It does not nullify your responsibility. God is still faithful when we are not. What does the verse say? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written. To expound on this a little further, if everyone on earth was unrighteous and said God doesn't exist, if everyone on earth rebelled against God, God would still be God. God would still be righteous. God would still be the creator of all, all sufficient, 
omnipresent, omniscient. He would still be God. So there are two points that he's trying to make here in this text. Paul is saying, number one, it is your responsibility, your unrighteousness. You cannot blame God on that. Second, even if you're unrighteous, God is still God. doesn't matter what you do. God in nature is still going to be all-powerful. So it's best that you turn towards him, not away from him. Because God is still going to be there. And then, after those two points, Paul, in these two verses alone, does something spectacular. He starts to quote Psalm 51. Say, why? You already made your point, Paul. What are you trying to do? But have we forgotten who this verse is written to? This was written to Paul. I mean, this was written to the Jews. So why Psalm 51? First of all, the Jews love David. And David wrote this passage in Psalm 51. The Jewish people knew the role that, G, that, that David played in their history. He was one of their most important kings. In fact, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. The Jewish people knew that. So Paul was trying to hit them where it hurt, right to their heart, using an, an example that he knew would affect them. Secondly, David dealt with his sin. We all know the story. David murdered in order to satisfy his lust, and he faced serious consequences. He faced a lot of death, a lot of betrayal. One of the examples of the betrayal is when his son tries to steal his throne and murder him, Absalom. David realized that in his sin there were great consequences, and he dealt with them. So Paul was trying to tell the Jew, listen, if you sin... You're going to have to deal with it because there will be consequences. Third, David acknowledges his transgression. David knew that he did evil against Bathsheba, that he did evil against her husband, that he did evil against his army. If you don't know the story, he lusted after Bathsheba and, and organized her husband's murder so that he can marry her. He knew that he did evil against all those things. Yet in this psalm, and we're going to read it in a moment, he says, against you and only you have I sinned. And he's talking to God. Why? Because God is the one that we sin against. When we miss the mark, we miss God's mark. He has placed a role before us to be image bearers. And when we miss the mark, we're not missing anyone else's mark except God himself. We can do evil against others, but we can only sin against God. David knew that. That our responsibility is to be image bearers of Christ. And David had the same role put on him. He was to be image bearers. And he failed. Do you know how many advantages David had? Do you have any idea? I probably don't have enough paper to write down all the advantages that he had. He was a king, being a man considered after God's own heart. But did he use his advantages to keep on sinning? Absolutely not. If anyone had pretty convincing advantages, I don't know about you guys, but to be described as a man after God's own heart in Scripture, is, if that's not an advantage, I don't know what else an advantage could be. But he recognized that his responsibility was to be an image bearer, and he failed And David, 
in this psalm shows us, and in that context shows the Jews how we should respond when we fail. What did he say? Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He shows us how we should respond. Lord, against you and only you have I sinned. I'm sorry, God. And fall on your face before him and know that you've done evil against others, but you've sinned against the holiness of God. You've sinned specifically against him. He set the bar. He gave you your role. He created you. What do we do in return? People want to think that honesty is the best policy for their sin. Oh, I'm being real. And God knows my heart. There's no way that a loving God can send me to hell. There's absolutely no way. That's what we like to think. In our millennial society, we also oftentimes hear God hates a sin but loves a sinner. How many of us have heard that? God hates a sin, loves a sinner. Well, I'm here to tell you he's not sending your sin to hell. Apart from a real transformational relationship with Christ, he's sending you to hell. Imagine the box that we put God in. Imagine the box we put him in. We don't put any other judge. He's the final judge, but we don't put any other judge in that same box. Imagine a just judge, a fair one, that gives no guilty verdicts whatsoever. Would you watch that Judge Judy episode? Would there be any viewers at all? A murderer, a child molester, a thief goes up to the judge and says, hey, yeah, I did it. You're a loving judge. You're fair. You're just. What do you say? All right, you're innocent. Go ahead. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Yet with God, our society loves to do that to him. Oh, God is just. He won't send me to hell. He's fair. He won't do that to me. How ridiculous does that sound? Oh, judge, it was your fault that I uh, parked illegally. You're the one that made the law, so it's your fault. How ridiculous does that sound? We've said it before from the worship team. Pastor Chris has said it from the pulpit. Thank God that he pours out his wrath and justice upon Jesus Christ on the cross and not on us. Because if he did, and he sent me to hell for eternity, do you know that I would be most deserving? Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God that we don't get exactly what we deserve. Thank God for the advantages that he's given us to reveal his truth. Thank God. Can we say it together? Thank God. Thank God. 
Thank God for his son, the sacrificial lamb, the savior of the world. Now that we know we have advantages, now that we know that God has given us just enough to be left without excuse, what are we going to do with our advantages? Are we going to use our advantages as an excuse to continue in sin? Or for those of you that don't even acknowledge the advantages that you have, are you trapping yourself in the advantages that you have? Are you trapping yourself in the Word of God? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you fellowshipping with one another that love Jesus? If not, then I would say take advantage of those, take advantage of those advantages. That's one way to get tongue-tied, right? But if you do have the advantages and you recognize them as advantages, are you saying, you know what? I read my Bible. I read it maybe three times this week. I'm good. I prayed. Mm, I think I'm okay. God doesn't expect anything more of me. What are we doing with the advantages that we have? Are we using them as a tool to be personally reminded of God's love, God's judgment, God's power, God's wrath and knowledge? Or are we going to use them to make excuses to keep on sinning as if they are the advantages themselves that save you and not the God that provided you those advantages? So, in conclusion, Paul is not saying that there is no advantage for being a Jew. Only that disobedience nullifies that advantage in the same way that it nullifies ours. Do we, as knowledgeable people, have advantages or liabilities? Let's pray. Father God, you have given us so much, Lord. So many advantages that we can praise you for. So many things that reveal your truth to us. Scripture in its entirety, the life of Christ presented for us. The history of the Israelites all before us. We know your work and we love it, Lord God, but help us never use these advantages that you've given us as an excuse to continue a life in disobedience. But allow it, allow to, it to be used as a way to wake us up. Because all these advantages do is point that you are real and we should live for your glory, God. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for all that you have done for us. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.